are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and if you're able to join us today, I'm so pleased about that. Uh, What I do on Thursday afternoons, or at least it's afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States, uh, I get together for a live question and answer time. And the reason why I specify that it's at least it's noon, 12 noon for me here on the West Coast, is one of the things I really enjoy about our YouTube question and answer time is that we have an international audience. Matter of fact, let me tell you this to our audience. I think I could probably get more viewers from the United States if I did this later in the day or in the evening, uh, West Coast time, maybe like five o'clock or something like that. But I like doing it at noon, not only because it's kind of convenient for me, but I also like doing it at noon because it gets more of an international audience. You know, it's uh, eight o'clock in the UK, it's nine o'clock in the evening in much of Europe, uh, Africa, other parts of the world. And we just like making this available to people for a global audience. So I like the time that we do it. I like these times we get together as a group, as a community, and spend some time talking about the Bible, about the Christian life, about issues. So what we usually do here uh, on our weekly question and answer time is we start with a lead question. And today's lead question is a little bit different because it didn't come directly to me in an email or a comment or uh, some kind of other message or something like that. This particular lead question is just something I've been thinking about the last few days. And so I wanna give today uh, just some thoughts or a thought for a deconstructing Christian. And I also say this is a little bit unusual today because usually I kind of write out something of a script and I even use just sort of a a text in front of me that I'll go over and use to guide me. But I'm doing this just much more spontaneously today. I want to talk about or talk to, uh, if I could, Christians who feel that they're deconstructing. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's a term that's been used a lot in the last several years. People who are sort of radically re-evaluating their Christianity. Is what I've taught, been taught true? Can I really trust the Bible? Uh, Are Christians and churches trustworthy? Um, Is it really worth it for me to give my life for this thing called Christianity? You could say that in the eyes of some people, their deconstruction is a radical re-evaluation of their Christianity. Now, I do want to say sort of from the beginning that I understand that in some ways, everybody's deconstruction or re-evaluation story is the same. They, they, they share a lot of parallel lines. Yet, there's another sense, and I'm very aware of this, in which everybody's deconstruction story is their own. They have their own personal influences, things that uh, are from their own experience, from their own observation, from people who have been an influence on them. So there's both uh, something common in these stories of deconstruction, but then there's also often some element that's particular or individual. So in no way do I think that I'm speaking to every individual who claims that they're deconstructing. Um, 
if this doesn't apply to you, if the shoe doesn't fit, then don't wear it. But th there is something in this that I think is helpful for us. And, and one thing I would want to say is simply, if you are re-evaluating your faith, if you're deconstructing your Christianity and you're sort of uh, tearing it down to, to speak in the metaphor of a building renovation, you're bringing it down to the studs so that you can rebuild. Hey, that's not a bad thing at all. Look, it is a good and healthy thing for us to evaluate our Christian life, what we believe, what we practice, and say how much of it genuinely is from the Bible. What comes, I'm reaching for a Bible here, what comes from the Bible and what is cultural, what's traditional? Uh, those are very healthy questions to ask. Because friends, I want to have a biblical Christianity, and there's no doubt that my practice of Christianity is influenced by my culture. Everybody's practice of Christianity is influenced by their culture. We just need to make sure that those cultural flavors or aspects of the Christianity, first of all, are not in contradiction to the scripture. And secondly, we can't elevate those cultural expressions as being something universal for all Christians at all times. So it's not a bad thing to sort of go down and ask the hard questions and can I really trust this Bible and uh, is Jesus Christ is who he said he was and, uh, and uh, are the people of God something good in this world? All those kind of questions, th those are valid to ask. But I do want to come back to a principle that at least in some of my observation of the deconstruction dialogue that's been going on in the Christian world over the past few years, my just sort of observations as a spectator upon that, I, I, I think we need to put it in the perspective of saying that there were times in Jesus's ministry where he felt that he had too many disciples and he was discouraging people from following him. Let me read you some passages from Luke chapter 14. Um, there's, there's just some radical words from Jesus here. And again, th th there were a lot of people that followed Jesus in, in the larger group of his followers. I mean, you, you had his disciples, which of course were 12 disciples. Then you, you had sort of a, a, a larger group of disciples around that. These were committed followers of Jesus Christ, but they weren't numbered among the 12. And then beyond that, you had sort of like the crowd, the multitude. They were attracted to Jesus, perhaps for what he taught, perhaps for the miracles that he worked, perhaps for the feeding of the 5,000 or other such things. They were attracted to Jesus, but really maybe not committed to him as disciples or not completely. And it's in that context that Jesus says words like this, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Do, do you see what Jesus is doing here in these verses? He's saying, if you're going to follow me, the love you have for me, the commitment you have for me must be so far above the, even the good loves of your life. The love of father and mother is a good love. The love of a wife or your children, brothers and sisters, those are all good loves. But your love and commitment to me must be higher than all of those. If you can't handle that, you can't be my disciple. 
Jesus went on in verse 27 and he said, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What a radical statement that was. Friends, the the cross was so horrific that it wasn't commonly spoken of in polite society. People understood that the cross was something terrible, awful. It was not only a form of execution, it was a horrible, torture-filled form of execution. And yet Jesus said, if you're not willing to follow me like a man carries his cross to his place of execution, you can't be my disciple. Jesus also said this in that same context, verses 28 through 30. He said, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. All who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Jesus said, I'm not asking for people to follow me with a light superficial commitment. If you're not going to be invested, then you're not ready to be my disciple. You better count the cost ahead of time. And then Jesus said, uh, in verse 31 and 32. Or what king going to make a war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. I I like that analogy that Jesus gave about uh, somebody's who's making war and sees that a king is coming against him and, and the king has to soberly consider, do I have the resources necessary to defend myself against this king? And if I don't, I better surrender. I, I better appreciate the cost in fighting against this king that's opposing me. And if I don't have the resources to win in that battle, I should surrender. Friends, in this analogy, I believe God is the king who comes against every person. And and you got to soberly consider, am I willing to bear the cost of rejecting God? Do you have the resources to endure that? So I just want you to understand the tenor, and I think this speaks to at least some who are in that process of what's commonly called today deconstruction. I, I guess what I'm speaking about is sort of this detached sense of, well, I'm going to sit back and evaluate Jesus. I'm going to evaluate Christianity. I'm going to evaluate the church. And you know what? If they don't really measure up to my specifications, if they don't measure up to my thing, then then you know what? Uh, maybe I, I'm better done with it. Now, friends, I know I'm putting it in, in an exaggerated light way. I, I know for the people that are going that, it, it may not necessarily be a light thing for them at all. I recognize that. But my exaggeration is just trying to draw some attention to what I believe is a bit of the absurdity in all of this. And what is the absurdity? The absurdity in it all is that we are in a position to judge or cast judgment upon Jesus. Friends, he judges us. We need to soberly consider that. And if you're deconstructing, well, it, look, it's good to reevaluate your faith, reevaluate your faith, and, and see in it what is truly biblical and what isn't. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Jesus isn't tired. He doesn't despise your hard questions, not one bit at all. But, but, 
don't ever approach it in a detached sense where you sort of sit in judgment upon Jesus himself. He judges us. You know, you would think that after such a stern message that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 14, that people would flee from him. But the very next verse after this section, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Look, friends, I recognize that maybe you, at the end of the day, you just don't think you need Jesus. You, You think Jesus doesn't measure up, that he doesn't have the stuff, that he's not worthy of it for you. Look, if that's the case, then that's the case. I, I, I say these words from the Bible. It doesn't give me pleasure to say, but I say, you can't be his disciple. You can't. You're, you're not of the disposition. Now, you, you could repent. You could change your mind. You, you, you could surrender to Jesus and, and how he reveals himself to us in the word. You can do all that. But we come to Jesus in terms of un reserved surrender. He's our Lord. And friends, that's, if deconstruction, I should say, leads you to that, then it is a wonderful, marvelous gift. If it leads you away from Jesus, friends, then I I don't mind saying you're going to regret it for all of eternity. Okay, Uh, That's it for our lead question. Now, before I get to the questions that have come in today on the live stream, which I'm very grateful for, very grateful for the questions that have come in on the live stream, um, I want to show you something that just came in the mail. Okay, uh, last week, I wasn't here. Thank you, uh, Chuck Musselwhite, Pastor Chuck Musselwhite, a village chapel in uh, Vandenberg Village or Lompoc, California. Thank you for filling in for me, and uh, I'm grateful that I got a group of guys who can fill in when I'm unable to make it. I was in flight coming back from Florida, and I I do have to say this. Next Thursday, I'm going to get on a plane in Phoenix, and I'm going to land at about 20 minutes till 12 o'clock here in Santa Barbara. Um, I'm going to come in. If we start a little bit late next week, please forgive me. I'm going to do the very best we can. But uh, I'm going to come straight from the airport, straight to here, and we're going to do a live Q&A next Thursday. And uh, uh, hopefully I'll be able to do it straight from the airport. But before I get into the questions that have come in on the side chat that I'm very grateful for, I, I want to show you something that came in while I was gone on my trip to Florida. It is our plaque from YouTube for 100,000 subscribers. Now, I think there's something curious about this plaque. First of all, I, I notice that... Um, it's a mirror. I don't know if you can see that, but right here, it's a mirror right there. And I guess you're supposed to look at yourself in the midst of this, which I'm not so hot on doing. But I don't know. Look at yourself and say, wow, you got 100,000 subscribers. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. But I want you to know that on this plaque, I had the inscribed enduring word, David Guzik and team. And I want to emphasize that. What we do here at all of our work at Enduring Word 
the Bible commentary, the translations, the distribution of different platforms, the U version work, the uh, Facebook work, the Instagram work, uh, the the Twitter work, uh, everything we do um, for for all the different aspects of the work that we do, including the YouTube channel. Friends, it's done by a team, and I just want to express how grateful I am for our team, especially the team that really helped build this YouTube channel. There's no way that we would cross that threshold of 100,000 subscribers if not for my board who originally pushed me to do a YouTube channel. I was hesitant to do it, Um, but they explained to me why it would be good for us to do, and so I'm glad they did. So I'm very grateful to uh, Lance and Miles and Chuck, uh, our board, for, for doing that. I'm super grateful for my wife, Ingalil, and all the inspiration and direction and help she's been in it. I'm grateful for Andrea, who's helped so much with the YouTube channel, for Devin, who's done so much, for Lauren, who, uh, even though she's no longer working with the YouTube channel, man, she really helped build it, and uh, for Annie, who does so much, uh, just about every thumbnail image you see for the Annie design that, she helps that, and then also uh, for Nathan who helps out now. And so we're just grateful for the whole team. I very deliberately had this inscribed, Enduring Word, David Guzik and team. So there's the plaque. It's your last opportunity to see it. I'm not gonna keep it up behind me. People don't wanna see that day to day, week to week. And so look, 100,000 subscribers. I'm very grateful for that milestone. I don't think that the big boys, you know, I don't think Mike Winger is exactly looking in his rear view mirror at me here. That's, that's not an issue here, but I am very content with what God gives me to do on the YouTube channel. If I could explain it this way. Friends, the YouTube channel for me is a side ministry. My real ministry is with the online Bible commentary that I have at EnduringWord.com, at Blue Letter Bible, and a few other distribution points. That's my main focus in ministry that online commentary that's been out for 27 years online, available absolutely free. And I reach far more people with that online Bible commentary than I do even with the YouTube channel. I'm very grateful for the reach that I have on the YouTube channel, but I reach a lot more people with that work of the Bible commentary. So the YouTube work is a sidelight. It'll never be my main focus, but I'm really happy to do it. And it's nice to reach a milestone like that. So thank you, those who subscribe. And I guess I'm supposed to say right now that if you haven't subscribed, uh, well, click subscribe, like, whatever it is you're supposed to do. Just do the things you're supposed to do. All right, with all of that in the past, let's go on now to the questions that come in on the side chat. Mason asks this question. Is it sinful for a man to be effeminate and or flamboyant? How would you address someone like that in your congregation? Mason, uh, that's a very relevant question to the present day. And I'm going to give you my perspective on this. Uh, My perspective is that the very short answer to that. Now, it's a short answer that requires further explanation. So I, I pray that people will listen to the further explanation and not just the short answer. But the short answer is simply this. Yes, it is sinful for a man to be effeminate and or flamboyant. Let me explain to you why. Uh, Because there's a principle given to us in the law of Moses uh, that men, basically, men shouldn't wear the things women wear and women shouldn't wear the things men wear. Men shouldn't act as if they're women and women shouldn't act as if they're men. 
Now, again, the way that that law was specifically prescribed for Israel doesn't apply to believers today. We're not under the law, but God reveals his heart. God reveals his will. God reveals his thinking to us in and through the law. So, there's many places in the Mosaic law where we would say the specific law doesn't apply, but the principle of it reflects God's heart, and as believers, we're interested in pleasing God that way. So, in general principle, men shouldn't act like women, and women shouldn't act like men. Now, now, this is the complicated part of it. At the same time, God has created humanity with a tremendous diversity of personality, not a diversity of gender. Friends, there's two genders. There's male and there's female. And uh, God creates people from the womb to be male and female, except for a few exceedingly rare malformations that I'm just going to leave to the side right now. And the overwhelming majority of people, and I would say overwhelming majority, I mean into the, the vast percentages, down, down to the, the minuscule portions, God creates people male or female in an unambiguous way. Now, that's their gender. That's their chromosomal makeup. However, people have all different personalities. And where does the personality come from? Well, part of the personality is given to a person from birth. Part of the personality is an effect of their experiences. Maybe it's effect of their training. Maybe it's an effect of what they want to do, of what they choose, of how they want to express themselves. So, people are of all different personalities. So, I can't tell you exactly where the line is between a, let's just say, and I'm just using this, between a, a Christian man who is just not as rough and tough, maybe if I could use the word softer in some sense, where's the line between that at a level that's acceptable and just a variance of personality and that which would be a sinful rejection of what God has called that person to be as a man, or correspondingly as a woman, if you're dealing with the, with the other um, sex, the other gender. I don't know exactly where that line is, and I don't know if anybody can say, but, but there are certainly many cases in which we can say, look, I don't know where the line is, but I know that this person has crossed it, that they're deliberately pursuing an effeminate or flamboyant kind of personality. And I would just say, that is not God's will for that individual. They're, they're to be a, a man. Now, again, I, I, I want to give allowance for differences in personality. We're not trying to imply for a moment that there's just like one personality of a Christian man, and every Christian man has to correspond to that personality. But certainly, even though I, I can't tell you in every case exactly where the line is, Often, it's obvious where that line has been transgressed, and it simply goes back to these fundamental principles in the Bible that in the beginning, God made humanity male and female, we get that, and that in the law of Moses, God specifically said that, well, specifically said, in principle, God said, men shouldn't try to be women and women shouldn't try to be men. Okay, that's the principle we'll go on. So, Mason, that's my answer to this question. Now, you also ask, 
How would you address someone like that in your congregation? Listen, this is an exceedingly difficult thing, but it needs to be dealt with with a lot of love, with a lot of grace, trying to distinguish. I mean, you, you, you need to sit down and try to come to, to a, a spirit-led understanding of is just this a, a, a appropriate expression of a person's personality or is this a result of confusion in their life? Is this a, con- a result of rebellion in their life? Look, confusion and rebellion explain a lot of the gender weirdness in our culture today. So I think if you're going to deal with the congregation, you need to deal with it as an individual on that kind of basis, um, with a lot of love, with a lot of grace, but realizing that this so goes against the spirit of our age that it's likely to blow up. Now, I, I don't say that saying you shouldn't do it, but you just need to do it going into it. That whenever believers confront the spirit of the age, they're going to face blowback. And again, that's not to tell if you shouldn't do it. We just need to be real about it going into it. And today, to simply say men should be men and women should act like women, even allowing for great difference of personality, um, that's a very inflammatory statement against the spirit of our age. Hope that's helpful for you, Mason. Let me go on to the next question from Benjamin, who asks, how should we interpret Jesus's response to Peter's confession of him being the Christ as someone revealed by God with the fact that his brother had firm, previously informed him that he had found the Messiah? So what we have in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus is asking that question to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And people give differences, or the disciples give different suggestions. Peter comes forth in response to Jesus' direct question, who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter responds with a very direct question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, um, that's a very express statement. And I guess Benjamin's question is, He's wondering if this is like the first time this has been declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Because earlier in Jesus' life and ministry, he had been um, uh, also called the Messiah. And he gives the example here of John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, where Peter's brother Andrew says, hey, he's the Messiah. Okay, let, let me explain it to you in this reference. There are a few unique things about the Matthew confession of faith. First of all, it's one thing for somebody to say, hey, I think this guy's the Messiah upon first meeting him. There's a radical difference about spending a great deal of time with somebody, which the disciples had spent a great deal of time with Jesus by this point, spending a great deal of time with a person and then saying, I believe you are the Christ. But notice this, Peter did not only confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He also called Jesus God. You are the son of the living God. And friends, I believe, I I will say that this is not without scholarly controversy. There's more than a few academics who would contest what I'm going to tell you right now, but I believe it nevertheless. That when Peter made that declaration, you're the Christ, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter was declaring not only that Jesus was Messiah, but that he was God. And friends, that was not a given 
in Judaism of the first century or even in our present day. There are many Jewish people who do not believe that the Messiah will be God. Oh, he'll be the Messiah, but they don't see any necessary connection between the Messiah and a uh, and God incarnate, God in human form. Now, obviously, the New Testament teaches this very clearly, but we just understand that among the Jews of the first century, and as I said before, uh, even to this present day, this is believed among many Jews, that the Messiah would not necessarily be God in human form. He would just be a great man, a great prophet. There's a lot of reasons for that that we don't need to get into right now. But Peter's confession was not only that Jesus was the Messiah. It was that Jesus was the Messiah after having spent a long time hearing and observing and living with Jesus. And it was that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but the son of the living God. Those two things, Benjamin, in my view, really make Peter's declaration unique and worthy of the special attention that Jesus gave to it there in Matthew chapter 16. Hope that's helpful for you, Benjamin. Let me go on to the next question after I take a little drink of coffee. From Cisco Kid, who says, Mr. Guzik, we have almost all your Bible commentaries. We love them. My question concerns the book of Enoch. What are your thoughts on this writing? You know, I wish my copy, I've got a cool old copy of the Apocrypha, but it's up on a shelf where I can't reach it right now, so I'm not even going to bother with it. It would just be really to show you the book and What's the point of that? You know what a book looks like. Um, the book of Enoch is numbered among the apocryphal books of the Old Testament. These are books that have been highly regarded by some, either Jews or Christians, throughout the ages, but by great majority consensus are not to be included in the collection of Holy Scripture. So the book of Enoch, I don't have any problem with saying that it's an ancient writing. I don't have any problem saying that at least portions of the book of Enoch were actually written or dictated by Enoch himself. At least portions of it. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. And I also believe that the book of Enoch is interesting reading. Why not go ahead and read it? But, and here's the important point, it should not be set on the same level as Holy Scripture. It is not God-breathed. It is not the inspired Scripture that we are familiar with in both the Old and the New Testament, the Hebrew and the Greek Scriptures. Now, in the book of Jude, Jude quotes the book of Enoch. Uh, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on the ungodly. I'm paraphrasing right there, but that's the approximate quote in the book of Jude. And there are some people who see that and they say, oh, Jude in the New Testament quotes Enoch from the Old Testament Apocrypha. That must mean that the book of Enoch is inspired by God, and really it belongs in our Bibles, in our Old Testaments. And I would say, no, you're not thinking through this correctly. Because just because a, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a biblical author quotes a writing, by no means does it mean that everything in that writing 
is inspired by God. In the book of Acts, there's a letter quoted from uh, a Roman commander to the guy over him. I'm doing this from memory. It doesn't mean that the entire writing was inspired of the Lord. It means that the portion quoted in the book of Acts, that was inspired by God for the inclusion in its context in the book of Acts. When Paul stood on Mars Hill and quoted two pagan poets, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, those things that he recorded in the book of Acts are inspired of Scripture. But it doesn't mean that, that those writings as a whole of those pagan poets are inspired or certainly not everything that those pagan poets wrote. So we don't have any problem with saying that the Bible can reference or point to or even quote something, uh, an ancient writing, without that entire ancient writing being inspired scripture. So somebody comes to me and say, well, David, look, just tell me, should I re- can I read the book of Enoch or not? Go ahead and read it. Should I read the book of Enoch or not? Look, if it's interesting to you, read it. Is the book of Enoch interesting? Yes. Uh, is there at least something in there of value? Yes. Is it inspired scripture? No. It is not inspired scripture. It is not God-breathed according to the standards of um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Okay, let me go on to the next question from SNL, who asks... How can we set boundaries in what may seem like a toxic relationship without being disobedient to the Christian commandment to forgive? Oh, SNL, you're asking a super relevant question in today's day and age. You know, that there's an awareness of people who think about toxic relationships, who think about relationships in which they have suffered abuse. And very naturally, they're thinking, how can I stop that? How can I avoid bringing that upon myself in the future? I mean, again, totally logical, reasonable questions to ask. Well, what I would just say in this regard, SNL, is first of all, I believe, and there are some people who teach this and practice this differently, but I I'm convinced of this for myself. I believe that there genuinely is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is sort of the release, the discharge of guilt I hold against you for sinning against me. I don't hold the sin against you. I don't harbor bitterness and and hatred in my heart for the thing you did against me. No, I, I, I forgive you. I release you. That's real. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation is restored relationship. And I just firmly believe that there are situations in which we can and should forgive, yet reconciliation would require trust. And trust, in, at least in some cases, often, trust should be earned, not automatically given. There should be trust. There should be, I don't know, safety, so to speak. 
So all of those are genuine concerns. And again, I, I want you to know that, that I make that, that separation there. And I'm not alone in this, of course, but I, I just want to uh, let you know that this isn't, people have different opinions in God's family, but, but, but I, I very strongly believe that there is a distinction to be made between forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and there are situations in which you can genuinely forgive someone, yet not reconcile with them because th- they haven't demonstrated any reason to trust them yet. And the reconciliation would await their repentance, their trustworthiness, as so it should be. Now, that being the case, I also recognize that that there's a current in our Christian world today that has something of this flavor. I will never allow a person to hurt me again. I'm going to be the watchdog. I'm going to set the boundaries. I'm going to protect myself. And I will never allow someone to hurt me again. Friends, I'm just here to say that to genuinely love anyone, and I'm talking about the kind of love that there is between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I'm talking about the kind of love that there should be between a parent and a child. I'm talking about the love that there should be between a husband and a wife. I'm just talking about love. Love in general means that if you're going to genuinely love, you're going to open yourself up to some hurt. And a hyper-vigilant attitude. Now, please notice the words I used. A hyper-vigilant attitude. I do not expect anybody, and I don't think it's pleasing to God, for them to go into a situation where they will know that they will be, well, let's just say, let's make it the extreme, that they will be violently abused. And to do it, well, I'll, you know, I'll do it because of love. Listen, rare, rare would be the cases where God would call somebody to that. However, there's a level of emotional and personal and relational vulnerability that we have to do just because we're called to love. SNL, with many of these things, there's no hard and fast line. There's principles, and we have to learn how to apply these principles led by the Spirit of God. So I hope that helps you a little bit there, SNL. There's no real categorical answer I can give you, but I can lay out those principles. All right? Another question from Lupe, who asks, based on Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, can missionaries rightly or justly leave their spouse to go into the mission field if their spouse refuses to go? And here's the, um, here's the verse, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left their house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this life, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, Lupi, I would say no. Now, I, I, I hold back on my no just a tiny bit, wondering if there wouldn't be just the, the rarest of exceptions to it. But in general, I would just say no. If somebody came to me and said, David, 
God's called me to be a missionary, but my wife isn't into this at all. But I believe God's called me, so I'm leaving her and the kids, and I'm heading out to the mission field. I would talk to that brother, and I would say, dear brother, I think you're severely mistaken, and you are um, neglecting, you're denying, you're turning your back on your first ministry, and your first ministry is your family. And I would say this to this brother, brother, you, you probably think yourself full of faith. Look how much faith I have. I'm stepping out. I'm following the Lord. I, I know this is God's will. I'm willing to leave everything. to Brother, you think you have that kind of faith. Where's your faith for believing that God can change your wife's mind or heart? I'd say to that brother, brother, don't you believe in the power of prayer? Don't you believe that if it was God's will and you prayed for your wife's heart and mind to be changed, that God would do it? You see, I, I believe that God can change the heart and mind of people and that God moves in response to prayer. What I would say to the brother or the sister who's convinced that they should leave their husband and wife or their children and go out on the mission field and forsake their family, basically. I would say, you're disobeying one command in order to obey another. And you're just mixed up about this. Now, what about the relevant passage there in Mark chapter 10? Well, listen, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. And friends, you, you don't have to go to the mission field to be a disciple of Jesus. But you do have to fulfill the responsibilities that he's given you right now. And I think that's very important. Fulfill the responsibilities that you have right now. And if right now you're married and have children, you need to fulfill your responsibilities to them. That's part of your discipleship. You're not becoming a better disciple by forsaking your family and going off to the mission field. Why not demonstrate your discipleship by praying in faith that God would change the heart of your wife uh, in this, or husband, whatever the case would be, in this particular situation? So, Lupi, that's the answer that I would give. Um, there's a fair amount of damage that has happened over the years because people put the ministry ahead of their family. And let's just in this situation say ahead of their spouse. It also happens in regard to children, but let's just say ahead of their spouse. I've seen pastors who put their ministry ahead of their wife and it wreaks havoc. In some cases I've seen it, they lose both their marriage and their ministry because they wouldn't approach things in the proper order. And I think that God wants us to uh, honor our us. And if, if a spouse needs to have their heart changed, the Bible says that the heart of a king is in the hand of God and he can guide it where he wishes. If God can do that with the heart of a king, he can do it with your husband or wife. Something to think about. Next question from Andromeda says, why does Job say that it is a sin to rejoice when something bad happens to our enemies, but Psalm 58 says that the righteous will rejoice when they see the vengeance? Uh, here it is in um, perhaps Job chapter 31, uh, verse 29. 
He says, if I have rejoiced in my enemy's ruin or exalted when evil befell him. Okay, well, uh, Andromeda, look, it's not very complicated. Um, Oftentimes, especially in these things that we find in the poetic books in the Bible, we're kind of quick to make universal laws about them where really what we have are principles that are applied in many different areas of a person walking in their life with God. So if somebody were to ask me, is it right to rejoice in the downfall of an enemy? I would say the answer is, well, yes or no, it depends on the circumstance. Certainly there's some times when it's wrong to do. Um, It's just wrong. That's what Job is referring to. Hey, I was so filled with love for others that even when my enemy was ruined, I didn't rejoice in it. That's a demonstration of love. Yet there's other times when things are so just transparently wicked and evil that when those people are overthrown, especially when they're taken from their positions of power, the people of God rejoice. So there is just very simply to say a contextual element to this. And I know in some cases and sometimes that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It it, it would be a little bit easier if um, it was always one or always the other, but it just isn't like that. You'll see this principle, Andromeda, especially in the Proverbs. People like to take the Proverbs and often make universal principles out of them where really they are pieces of wisdom that have application sometimes in a very certain context and not in another context. So that's really the situation. There are instances where it's a godly thing to rejoice in the downfall of the wicked. There are other places where it's ungodly. And may the Holy Spirit give us discernment to do what's right in those particular situations. Hope that's helpful for you. I'll be honest, Andromeda, I don't know that that's a very satisfactory answer, but it's the best one that I can give. Okay, continuing on, a question from, oh, here's a lightning round of quick questions. Oh, I'll see how quick I can be. Char asks, would deconstruction from oneness Pentecostalism be a bad or a good thing? Char, that would be a good thing because oneness Pentecostalism, in their conception of God, um, it isn't biblical. It doesn't match up with the scriptures. And so from that aspect of oneness Pentecostalism, it would be a good thing to deconstruct from that. But I'm not going to say every aspect of the theology of oneness Pentecostalism is corrupt or bad, but certainly that particular aspect of their oneness teaching, that isn't biblical, and it's a good thing to deconstruct from that. Deb asks, so exciting, we're in our lightning round. Pastor David, have you seen the Jesus Revolution movie? Even secular movie critics are saying it's a well-made quality movie. Okay, Deb, friend, I'm very, very sorry. This is my true confession. I have not yet seen the movie, The Jesus Revolution. I've been invited to special screenings, um, but I've been traveling a lot. I just haven't been able to see it. Uh, I was almost hoping to be able to see it tonight in a theater, but then we got another special engagement that's come along. So I have not, but my wife has seen it. So many people, I recommend with all my heart, go out and see the movie, The Jesus Revolution. I think it's an amazing movie from everything that's been reported to me of it. And from, from speaking with some of the people involved with the movie, see it, promote it. I think it's a great movie. Uh, th- that's not a documentary. It, it doesn't tell the story with 
historical precision, but with general, I would say, historical accuracy. And so see that movie, The Jesus Revolution. Um, I think it's a great thing, and I'm very, very grateful. Now, I'll admit, I'm biased in this. One of the main subjects of the movie, uh, a man named Greg Laurie, Greg Laurie was the man who led me to Jesus Christ. I responded to an invitation that Greg Laurie gave when I was 13 years old at Raincross Square in Riverside, California on an Easter Sunday night, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I've never been the same. And I'm very grateful to Greg Laurie, not only for that, but that the first church experience that I had was in Calvary Chapel, Riverside, later named Harvest, but still part of the Calvary Chapel broader family for sure. But, but Calvary Chapel, Riverside, and that taught me so much about ministry and the word. And, and Greg Laurie has been an amazing initial pattern for me in my ministry and, and just in my walk with God. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, so maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I say, see it, friends. See that movie, The Jesus Revolution. Okay, we're still on the lightning round. Um, Deb also asks, Pastor David, do you still lead trips to Israel? I really want to go, but I have to save up. Okay, Deb, just today, or the last few days, I've been speaking with the man on our board who handles this stuff, and we are planning an Israel, an enduring word Israel trip, probably October 2024. So put it on your calendars. Sometime, and we'll come out with news when we have it. But October 2024. This year, we're leading an enduring word cruise of the Mediterranean, seeing sites like Ephesus and Jerusalem and Nazareth and Galilee and Alexandria and Athens. And it's going to be amazing. But not only is it sold out, the waiting list is, I think, 100 people long. Look, it, you're not going to be able to get on the cruise for this year. Uh, but next year, and hopefully we'll come out with information soon, we're going to propose an Enduring Word uh, Israel trip. And if enough people want to go, we'll do it. Look, if there's not interest, that's okay. But uh, if there's enough people want to go, we will definitely do it. Keep your eyes open for that, Deb. And then our final question comes from April, who asks this. Luke chapter 22, verse 3 says, Satan entered Judas. So is Judas still at fault for betraying Jesus if Satan had caused him to do it? April, good question, but absolutely yes. Satan was able to do what he did in and through Judas because Judas wanted it. Now, friends, I'm here to admit there are mysteries of the spiritual realm, especially when it comes to the demonic, that we don't quite understand. And so I can't tell you all the reasons why a person is troubled by the demonic. I think some things are knowable, other things aren't knowable. But I will tell you this, that Judas wanted to betray Jesus. Judas did it out of the motive of greed. So Satan definitely entered Judas. Satan definitely was there to, I know almost 
make sure, so to speak, it got done. I, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but I'll just say this very simply and straightforwardly. Satan did not have to convince an unwilling Judas to do what he did. Judas wanted to do it, and he did it for the sake of greed, which makes his sin and his tragedy all the more um, tragic, sad. Okay, friends, that's going to be it for today's question and answer time. Again, I want to say thank you to the Enduring Word team. You've earned our 100,000 subscriber award. And uh, thank you to the subscribers and people who are part of our Enduring Word family, both on YouTube and the website. Hey, if you haven't heard, I have a verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible that is, um, well, some people find it helpful. And it's fairly widely used. So go to EnduringWord.com, use it. it. It's not an academic work, but it takes the Bible seriously. And so there are accomplished pastors and preachers who find my commentary useful, but it's written clear enough to where there's teenage gals on TikTok who love talking about, by the way, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, we'll try to put the link in the uh description of this, but you got to check out the video that we have of uh, users on TikTok talking about the Enduring Word commentary. That's a fun video. I'm very happy for that video. So that is going to be it for today. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Uh, thanks to the Enduring Word team for making 100,000 subscribers possible and today's particular program possible. We're very grateful and blessed by what God continues to do in and through the power of his word working through the Holy Spirit. Thanks so much, and thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.